Last year, Susan and I had the opportunity to go to this concert downtown Kitchener. I think it was at the, the Registry Theater, and there was a jazz trio there. And there was a guy sitting down at a grand piano, this gentleman standing up with this massive stand-up bass, and a drummer who sometimes got off the drums and also played guitar a little bit. But these three guys, and I am telling you, their musical proficiency was unbelievable. It was incredible. The hair would stand up on the back of your neck and stand up on your arms, and I mean, it would stand up on your head if you had hair on your head. I mean, it just was, they were amazing. And what was interesting was, it seemed like they could do anything that they wanted to do, but they were still playing within a structure. I mean, they weren't unrestricted. No, no musician, no artist is truly unrestricted. I mean, there's restrictions of tempo and harmony and circle of fifths and all these things I don't understand. But I mean, they were, there was some restriction there. But within that, uh, if I was to use that, that word, that pattern, they were locked into a tempo. There was all this great freedom. And so they would start a song, and it sounded very familiar. You know, dashing through the snow. And your brain is your brain is following along. You know where it's going to go. And then, you know, on and 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 on. Just all over the place. And then over to the over to the bass guy. And over to the piano guy and back and forth and back and forth. And then they'd lock back in to the you know, the predictable part that we all know. You know, the Lord's Prayer, which is what we've been looking at line by line by line, is this pattern. And even though we're locked into a pattern, and we actually pray the actual words on Sunday mornings, week in and week out, we pray the actual words of the Lord's Prayer. But during the week, day in and day out, it's like this pattern whereby our hearts and our spirits cry out to God in prayer, like those jazz musicians. And we, we cry out to God very specifically about all of the specific things that, that, are, that are in our lives, but the Lord's Prayer is this gracious gift, this gracious pattern that navigates and guides us through to this place of rest, in the same way that those musicians had a, a pattern that they were following that even though they got off of the, the specifics of that pattern and they became very creative, they were locked into that pattern. The Lord's Prayer provides uh, that beautiful, gracious pattern for us. It's an, it essentially guides us, the emphasis of prayer, it guides us in our purpose of prayer, it guides us in our posture in prayer. Prayer in general, prayer is a conversation that God started in grace. And we're now responding to his, the conversation he began through the grace of Christ. That's how we, we come to prayer and, and why we come to God in prayer. So this conversation that God started in grace is actually strengthened in our prayer in community. Christian faith is not an individual faith. You, you can find a preacher in 10 seconds online that's far superior to the end of the preaching I'm going to do. You can find music that is far more proficient than anything that we're going to provide here. You can stay home with a podcast and kind of enjoy that. And that would be very meaningful to you in a very personal way. But what Jesus gave was this communal faith, which we said, well, why would he do that? Because now I'm surrounded by all these, these uh, imperfect uh, vessels that are helpful and unhelpful, you know, loving and not loving. And we've, we kind of live these messy lives together in this community of church. But he, he gave it to us. Uh, as this gift of grace whereby he does his gracious work. So the Lord's Prayer, when you think about it, it's given in the plural. 
And every week we pray it. Our Father, who is in heaven, right? Hallowed be thy name. It's, it's this plural prayer that he gave. And it's because as you go through the New Testament, here's what we find, is that our public worship altogether, God says, I'll, God in his great grace saves us, even though we don't deserve it. And then he says, here's how to worship me. You don't get to decide how to worship me, because P.S., you're not God. Here's how to worship me. And then when God shows us how to worship him, our, our public worship frames our private devotion, not the other way around. Because if all of our private devotion was supposed to frame our public worship, this place would be a zoo on Sunday mornings. Because all of us would be like those jazz musicians that when we pray, and the way we pray, and the way we worship, and the music we like, and all of these personal things that really minister to us when we go in our homes are beautiful, and we enjoy all those things, right? They're great. It's a little bit like that jazz musician going up and... But we can't bring that all in here on Sunday morning and say, okay, well, because this is the way that I personally worship at home in my own, you know, personal space, this is how we should all be doing it here. This place would be a zoo. So, so the Lord's Prayer is this gracious gift that brings us into this kind of place of, of unity. I'll borrow from Paul Tripp, and I'll say it this way. Corporate worship is this regular gracious reminder that worship isn't about you. You've been born into a life that's a celebration of another. Corporate worship takes uh, people who would naturally run from God and gives them a reason to run to God in confession and in surrender. It puts before us a Savior who is much more glorious than all the false saviors that tug at our hearts every day. And it transports us from the delusion of hope in ourselves to the eternal rest of hope in a Redeemer and in his grace. So this morning, I'm going to uh, remind you of the Lord's Prayer, line by line, which we find in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And then I'm actually going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Because this morning, we're going to emphasize, we're going to look at um, the line, the last line that reads, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17 where Paul kind of gives us some insight to expound on that. But before we get there, let's just think about the Lord's Prayer and the pattern, this gracious pattern that we're given. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because of the great grace of Christ, you have a Father over you, not a judge over you. So you come to our Father. We have this great father-child relationship in prayer. Hallowed be thy name. We hallow his name. Holy is your name. God doesn't need us to praise him to be God. We need to praise him to be fully human. We need to praise him so that our hearts can find rest. Otherwise, our hearts are going to chase after all kinds of things way smaller than God to give us what only God can give us. We're going to chase after things way less powerful than God to to give our hearts the rest that's only found in God. Our Father who is in heaven, praise be your name. Hallowed be your name. Then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, that reorients us into this place of submission. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. God, you're smarter and greater and wiser and more gracious than I am, even though I don't understand what's going on in this crazy planet. It reorients our hearts. As Luther said, it causes us to bow our heads to this low door of humility, just come to God in his grace, and fall in a heap and be like, I need you. I mean, where else am I going to go? 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It removes us from our failing attempts to be God, and it reorients us in the rest and the greatness of God. It invites us out of all of our anxiety about what we think should happen, and it invites us to rest in God's grace for whatever happens. And then we pray, Oh God, give us this day our daily bread. And remember, this Lord's Prayer, every line, it ends with an exclamation point. In the Greek, it sounds like you're commanding God to do things. That's how strong it is. We're obviously not commanding God to do anything. We can't. We're entreating him. But it's so passionate, this prayer. God, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. But notice, before we're praying, give me what we need, our hearts have been reoriented. First, there's this great reorientation of, and submission and praise and glorifying. And then we come to this, oh, God, give me what we need. This is the part of prayer we're most interested in. Give me what we need. But like those jazz musicians that didn't just rush their way through the song, bum, 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 that's not, the Lord's Prayer is not intended to be that. The Lord's Prayer is not intended to be something we pray in 30 seconds. When we are praying day in and day out, the pattern of the Lord's Prayer is infusing our prayer. And so we begin with that prayer. Oh God, my Father in heaven, praise be to your name. And you know what? Sometimes we might have to take a whole lot of time in that before our hearts are even ready. To get to this place of, your will be done. God, your kingdom come. Before we get to the place of, oh God, give me what I need. Because otherwise I'm going to just be like a little child that's pretty convinced I know exactly what I need. And if God doesn't give it to me, it's going to be game over. I've been there. You've been there. We struggle with this. We want to be God so badly. So we pray. And Jesus says, ask him boldly for your daily bread. Don't shy away from asking God for things. Boldly ask him for things. Why? Not because, like, a parent just gives their children everything they ask. God, we don't have a genie of the lamp relationship with God. He doesn't give us whatever we ask. But yet, Jesus says, boldly ask him. Why? Because we can present our needs to God daily because we're dependent, humbly because God is wise, and confidently because we're loved. Praying for our daily bread reminds us that our ultimate need, our ultimate daily bread, our ultimate need has already been met. God has already solved our biggest problem. And it's from the rest of that grace, that great grace of that eternal promise, that we actually find rest for the day-to-day, to make sense of the world that we live in, to make sense of the suffering that we're in. Every single one of you come through this door every single week with hurts and pains and frustrations and sorrows and things you have to deal with on Monday and relationships that are broken and relationships that are devastated. And some of you lay in bed at night and you wonder how you're going to, you know, you know, pay your bills. Some of you have battles with sickness in your bodies. Everybody who comes through this door has something to come before God and be like, oh God, would you give me my daily bread? Give me what I need. And it's in his great grace that we're invited to do that in a very restful and confident place because we're children coming to a father who loves us. We're not strangers coming to rubbing a genie of a lamb. And so then after we ask for our daily bread, we pray, oh God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we recognize and remember this. And why would Jesus call for us to pray and to come to this place? Because then it reminds us of our pardon. It reminds us of God's grace. It reminds us of the frailty of humanity, of our world. It reminds us that, you know what? I have been 
pardoned. And from this rest of pardon, oh God, would you give me the grace to pardon others. Oh God, as I am resting in your forgiveness, would I by your grace forgive others. Forgiveness is what we do from the rest in our pardon. And then Jesus moves on and he says, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the gospel assures us as we pray that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to be delivered from the evil that clings to your heart, your old nature, wanting to drag you back into your sin. You've been you are being delivered from the evil that is inside you, and you have already been delivered from the evil one who is outside you. The sin inside you and I causes us to fall back into a me-first default position. Me-first life. The sin in your heart and mind causes us to build a wall around our heart that's labeled comfort. It says anything that doesn't fit in there, I'm pushing away. That's what our sin does. It just, it just in all of us in a hundred different ways this is what it does but the good news of the gospel as we pray oh god deliver us from evil lead us not into temptation but would you deliver us from temptation and deliver us from evil is not only that we have been delivered we are being delivered from that but that we have been delivered from the evil one who is outside us constantly attacking us constantly coming toward us and this is the rest of grace which brings us to the final line in the lord's prayer what we'll look at uh, this morning that says, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Jesus brings us to this end in prayer so that after acknowledging all of our needs, after acknowledging all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our prayer, after falling on a heap at the feet of our Heavenly Father, after crying out to Him, after, after confessing all of our troubles and our insufficiency, we're invited to rest in God's sufficiency. And so the end of the Lord's Prayer invites us back into this place of rest. Back into this place of, do you see how small you are? Do you see how great God is? You're his child. You're his. Find great rest in your smallness and in his greatness. That's why the Lord's Prayer ends there. It takes us back there to this place of God's greatness. In the Westminster Confession... Expounding on this on the Lord's Prayer, it says this that the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teaches our hearts where to find encouragement. And like I said, all of us have all of us have come in here with things that grieve us. Where is your heart going to find encouragement and rest for your grief and your sorrow? The Lord's Prayer teaches us where to find it. Jesus says, I'm going to teach your heart where to find that rest. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Forever. You have saved me in scandalous grace. You have solved my ultimate problem. In the end is not death but life. I've got to find rest in your greatness and in my smallness. The Heidelberg Catechism on the Lord's Day 52 encourages us by saying that we're making requests to God because he's the all-powerful king. And it's his name, not ours, that will endure forever. And there's great rest there. There's great rest to be found there. Now I want to read for you a few verses from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, where Paul is going to say some things that are going to expound 
just how powerful and just how worshipful that last line is. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and the glory forever. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. See, the sermon this morning in a sentence would be this. Not only do the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to God, you belong to God. And because of his great grace in Christ, your soul will find rest when you remember that you are in the grip of his grace. Every time we pray, week in and week out at Redeemer, when we pray, for thine is the kingdom, and thine is the glory, and thine is the power, forever. Amen. Your heart should also cry, and I'm yours too. And I'm your, I am your child too. And that's where the rest is. In verse 12, Paul says, hey, God judged me faithful. Didn't mean he actually was, any more than you and I were. When Paul says, God judged me faithful, he says, he counted me. He's saying that God looked down, and even though he was anything but faithful, he was actually at his worst, and he was this, you know, oppressor who didn't deserve grace, God gave him grace. And that's our story, too. That's our story, too. That's where Paul starts before he gets to the end of, whoa, this huge praise to God. He goes all the way back and remembers. He can't believe, given his background, he's entrusted with the gospel at all. To borrow from Augustine, Augustine would say it this way, God doesn't choose a person who's worthy, but the act of choosing him makes them worthy, because the worthiness is Christ. And that's why Paul is amazed, and that's why you and I can be amazed by grace. Here we are sitting here. Here we are. We're God's kids. With all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the worry and all of the sorrow and all the things that all of us are dealing with, we are God's children. And he is with us in our suffering. He's going to save us through all of our suffering. And in the end, spoiler alert on the end of the Bible, he eradicates all suffering. We are his. There's great rest there. So Paul marveled that God would take a man who was blasphemous and prideful and bring him into the ministry. And that's why, that's why Paul prays at the end. Because he wrote this when he got, just right when he got out of prison. So his prayer isn't, God, what's going on in my life? And that's a great prayer, by the way. But that's not actually what he prays. He gets out of prison and he reflects on everything that he was and how God has saved him in great grace. And he just got out of prison when he reads, writes 1 Timothy. And his prayer is, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Wow. 
There's something powerful that the Spirit does when our, when our hearts come into that great place of rest. And then in verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, Of who I am, the foremost. And, but the scriptures reveal that Paul was completely lost. He was a religious predator. He had blood-stained hands. He was callous. He was self-righteous. He was bigoted. He, he, was, he was a murderer, and he was hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition of the church. This is Paul. I mean, he was the worst. He was the worst. And God saved him. Now, you and I look at that and go, can we really identify with that? Well, not really in one sense, because uh, none of us have probably done the things on Paul's list. But in the same way that God saved Paul out of sheer grace, he saved us out of sheer grace, just completely lost. Completely lost. And so if anybody would want to talk about themselves as a past tense sinner, it would be Paul. If I had done the things that he did, I, would have, I, would have, I wouldn't have written that verse the way we read it. I wouldn't have said, God say, you know, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, you know, the foremost. I wouldn't have written that. I would have said, God saved sinners, of whom I was. That's what I would have said. But in English it says am, and P.S. in the Greek it says am, okay, for... I mean, it's just, it's present tense. Why would he do that? Is Paul confused? Is he being, uh, is he being, you know, is he just uh, being, you know, really down on himself or something? What is he doing? Is he, no. The reason he's saying, I am, is not because he's celebrating his sin and not because he's saying the Spirit didn't change me and not because of any of those things. He says, I am in the present tense because he's resting in the radicality of God's great grace. He's so confident that his righteousness is in Christ, he doesn't have to self-polish, he doesn't have to polish his own self-righteousness. He says, of whom I am, and yet look at what God did. And then he made me this example that God would save others. You know, the Pharisees in Luke 18, uh, the Pharisees, when, when, when they prayed, they stood in the street and they said, thank God I'm not like that guy. That's how they prayed. Thank God I'm not a sinner. Thank God I'm not like other men. I mean, they're sinners, but I'm not. That's how the Pharisees prayed. Paul prays, and he goes, look at what God did. He saved sinners, of whom I'm the worst one. I'm the, I'm the first. I'm the foremost. The word in the Greek, for example, when Paul talks about being an example, it, he's saying, I'm the prototype. That's what he's saying. I'm the prototype. I'm the first one that God would show this incredible, radical, patient grace to. And so as he's reflecting on all of this, uh, he just comes to this, this radical place of, of rest. And it's amazing. And so, in the same way that God saved Paul, he saved us out of, out of sheer grace. And so, Paul's reflecting on this gospel promise, and then he starts reflecting on eternal life. And when he reflects on eternal life, it takes him someplace. The story arc of all of redemption. The story arc of the Bible. That in the end is restoration. In North Americans, we forget this all the time. We don't even think about it. We're not excited about it. We don't... They're just day-to-day... What we're thinking about is the day-to-day, which is why God in his great grace gives us command and says every seven days you should come and think about eternity for a day. It would be really helpful for your soul if every seven days you broke out of the day-to-day and you thought about the glorious gospel. Because there's rest there. So Paul starts thinking about this, and as he starts thinking about eternity... It brings him to this place of praise. Yours is the kingdom and the power. He, that's why he says, To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. But church, you and I can't get to that place of rest and confidence in the middle of all of our suffering, in the middle of all the things that you're dealing with in your life, 
unless we recalibrate our hearts and get back to be like, what, is, what has God really done here? Is this grace amazing? Is the good news always news, or does it just become old news? You know, that kind of thing. And so Paul, and, Paul is invited back into that, and it's incredible. You know, you'll notice behind me, there's a cross on the, sitting there on the table where we receive uh, the Lord's Supper. The cross, this great symbol of, of God's grace. But there's another sign in here. It's not a very religious symbol, but I think it's a great one. And it's up there in the corner. It's a scoreboard. You'll notice that scoreboard is not lit up. It's never been lit up. It's not ever going to be lit up. Because the gospel spends the, spells the end of religious scorekeeping. The gospel of God's grace says you're receiving what Christ has done. If you're united to Christ alone, God is not keeping score. It's game over. This is the only time in your entire week when everything is finished. Nothing at work is finished. Your marriages aren't finished. Your children aren't finished. There's nothing in your relationship. Nothing is finished. But on Sunday mornings, we come and we rest in, in what is finished. That's what Paul did, and that's what brought the, the praise. Michael Horton says it this way. Theology, the whole point of theology is to end in doxology. Doxology is a fancy word which means to, to praise God. And the whole reason we bother with this thing called theology and diving into the scriptures and what do they mean and how can this be good? What is, the whole point of it is praise. That's the, whole, that's the whole point. Theology should lead to doxology. So when you read Paul here, he's reflecting back on grace. He's reflecting back on what good, it, and it results in this great praise. How do you and I get curved out of the pain, the hurt, the frustration, the suffering, the, the, the day-to-day of your life, the day-to-day of my life? How do we get curved out of that? We can't do it in and of ourselves. That's why we get recalibrated back into grace, just as Paul was. And in the end, our hearts are crying, Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory, and, and, thine is, and, and, I, and I am thine, your child, too. I'm yours, too. All those things are yours, and I'm yours. There's the great rest there. And so uh, the Lord's Prayer ends in that powerful, that majestic way. It's given to you, church, to bless you with God's strength in your times of weakness. And your times of weakness are daily. They're hour to hour, your times of weakness. So are mine. And the Lord's Prayer is given to you as this great gift to give you strength in your times of weakness, to cry out to God in that way. And prayer will reorient your soul so that regardless of your circumstances, you enjoy restful confidence because you're in the hands of God who transcends your circumstances. And so not only do the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to God, but you belong to God. And there's rest in remembering that you are in his gracious grip. Let's pray.